0: The second sermon of Jesus, in Matthew's gospel record, is a sermon for kingdom servants. Now you recall the first one, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, was a sermon to kingdom citizens on how to live as kingdom citizens. The second sermon is a sermon for kingdom servants on how we are to live and behave as servants. Now Jesus began this sermon here in Matthew 10 by commissioning, certifying, and confirming His disciples as servants. And beginning with the twelve and continuing on through the first century, they identified themselves as His servants. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. James 1.1, 1, 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul referred to Epaphras as a bondslave of Jesus Christ, Colossians 4.12. Additionally, Paul encouraged young Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be a servant? And I'm sure if I went around the room I'd get similar answers, but probably some different answers as to what it means. Well let's think at what the scripture says. In Greek, a servant or doulos is one who sets aside all rights to serve the will of another one who sets aside their rights to serve the will of another. Individuals typically entered servitude then due to a debt owed. That was the typical reason somebody was in servitude. Sometimes the servitude was voluntary. In an example where an individual, because of money or debt owed, would sell themselves into servitude. Others, however, sold themselves into slavery not because of they volunteered, but because of something they had done. For example, in the case of a criminal, to pay for the crimes committed, that individual would be placed in servitude to the one in whom they had committed the crime. So sometimes it was voluntary. Other times, it was by force. Now in the Hebrew scriptures, Abed has a similar meaning as Dulas. That idea of someone setting aside their right to serve the will of another. For example, according to the Torah in Exodus 21, 5-6, to six, we see an individual volunteering themselves to become a permanent servant on a bed of another. It says this in verse 5 of Exodus 21, But if the servant, the bed, plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Okay, he's choosing to place himself in permanent servitude to his master because he loves his master. His master shall bring him to God and then bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. Additionally, as we work our way through the Hebrew scriptures, we find several notable individuals who were regarded as servants, not just any servant, but the servants of God. Genesis twenty six twenty four. Yahweh appeared to him that same night. This is Isaac. He appears to Isaac and says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. How about Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7? He says, not so, my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Joshua 24, 29. It came about after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Being 110 years old. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 5. Go and say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? And then Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 3. Yahweh said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush. So we have Abraham, Joshua, Moses, David, and Isaiah all referred to as servants of God. Now listen, I've got to be honest with you as as just an aside here. I am so glad that I don't get a voice from Yahweh telling me to walk around naked for three years as a sign to the people. And I'm sure you're all thankful that God hasn't given me that that word either. Okay? Uh, servitude required a lot, though, didn't it? But nonetheless, here are these heroes of faith, these great men, who were referred to as servants, kings, patriarchs, prophets, called servants of God. And so it gives us an understanding that the term servant, yes, it conveys humility. But it also is a place of great honor. God's servant, to be His servant, is to be in a place of honor. As believers, we were formerly servants to sin. But Jesus declared in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a servant, a doulas of sin. But in Romans 6.18, Paul says, we've been freed from sin, so you have now become the servants of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. Now how did that occur? How did that happen? How were we transferred from one servitude to another? Acts 20 verse 28 says that we were purchased with Jesus' own blood. And Paul declares, therefore now, as servants of righteousness, we're servants of Jesus. First Corinthians 6.20 goes on to say that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. You see, as servants of the king, as kingdom servants, we have, by receiving that gift of salvation, we have voluntarily set ourselves under His lordship. And in doing so, we have given up our rights to serve His will. Just as Jesus taught us to pray, when we pray to the Father, what do we pray? Not our will, but yours be done. At that moment of salvation, our rights were set aside. And nonetheless, though we are servants of His, it is a position of great honor. You see, because Jesus has brought us, there ought to be no question that as disciples, as believers, that we ought to serve Him. The only question that we should be asking is not whether or not we ought to serve. Yes, we should, because we've been bought. The question we need to be asking is, what area of service have we been called and commissioned to? What area of service have we been called and commissioned to? Now, before, in a previous message, I gave you uh, three ways in which you can deduce the area of service that you've been commissioned to. I said, number one, you need to examine the desire of your heart. Examine the desire of your heart. I said, number two, you need to consider the assessment of other spiritual mature believers. You know, listen, sometimes other people know it's better than we know ourselves. And then three, we have to look for opportunities to serve. And believe me, just like you walk around town and you go here and there, you see help wanted signs everywhere. Listen, the church has had the corner market on that for generations. The fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. There's always a help wanted sign in the church of God. We're always looking for people to serve. There's plenty of areas to serve. So you've got to check the desire of your heart and consider the assessment of other spiritual mature believers. And then last time, we noted that, that Jesus has given us five particular tasks. There's five things that we need to do, first and foremost, as kingdom servants. Number one, serve where you're sent. Okay? We need to serve where God sends us. Okay, God sent me here to Trinity Bible Church. This is where I serve. I don't jump on a plane and go here, there, and everywhere else serving because this is the area God has called me to serve. We, number two, we don't only serve where we're sent, but what else do we do? We preach the gospel. We declare the king's message. And wherever he has sent you, that's what you can do. Number three, we've got to perform deeds of compassion. We need to perform deeds of compassion. Number four, we need to rely on God's provisions. And the fifth and final task was to identify those receptive to the message, the gospel. Now in that final task of identifying those receptive to the gospel, Jesus makes it very clear. Not everybody's going to respond positively. Some are going to say no. Some are going to reject. But we need to understand that not only is our message going to be rejected, but sometimes we are going to be rejected. Indeed, the proclamation of the gospel is inseparable from rejection. And so Jesus now addresses the rejection of kingdom servants here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23. And in light of the rejection, we must be poised, we must be prepared, and we must be prudent. Poised, prepared, and prudent. Let's begin with verse 16. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16 sets forth for us that kingdom servants, we are as kingdom servants, we are to be poised for rejection. Be poised for rejection. Behold, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Be poised for rejection. Now notice he begins, Behold, adieu. There's an idea here of pay attention to what I'm about to say. Now up to this point, Jesus has said many things. And they've all been important. But what he is about to say is extremely important. If you weren't paying attention, now you really need to pay attention. Why? Why is it so important? It's so important because the message is Here is, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Digest that for a moment. He's sending his servants out as sheep amidst wolves. Now that verb send out, Apostello. It's a play on words. Back in verses 1 and 2, he called the twelve disciples. Now remember, there were other disciples, but he picked 12 of them. And then he commissioned them to be apostles, or apostello, or apostolos, I'm making you sent ones. And now here, he says what? I send you out. I apostello you. So, I've chosen you to be sent ones, and now I'm sending you out. But take note of how and where we are being sent out. As sheep. In the midst of wolves. So how are we sent out? We're sent out like sheep. Now, we need to understand here, while sheep look cute, referring to us as sheep was not casting us in the best light. Consider that sheep are incapable of discerning whether vegetation is edible or poisonous. They'll eat whatever's in front of them. Sheep, are easily irritated. Flies buzz around their head, they get so irritated, they will bash their heads into rocks or trees to the point of death. And sheep are also easily frightened. So much so that if they sense danger, they will stampede, trample their young in the process, and run to the point of death from exhaustion. Is it any wonder that sheep need a shepherd to lead them and feed them and protect them? Sheep are plain dumb. And so he says, I'm sending you out as sheep. In other words, I'm sending you out even though you're undiscerning, even though you're irritable, and even though you're easily frightened. Now that tells us that we are in need of someone to lead us, feed us, and protect us. If we're sheep, we need a shepherd. But we don't just need any shepherd, we need what? We need a good shepherd. And what does Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The point is that we cannot serve as servants of God on our own. We're entirely dependent upon our shepherd king. Here's an interesting side note. In the book of Exodus, you recall that Joseph had been down there in the book of Genesis, and he brought his entire family, Jacob and his brothers and family, all down to Egypt. And it tells us that the Hiskos were ruling at the time. That word Hiskos means shepherd kings. And they were Semitic people. They were descendants of Shem, much like Jacob and his children and Joseph were descendants of Shem. So were these Hiskos. They weren't Egyptians. They were reigning over Egypt. And God brought Israel down into Egypt during that great famine under the reign of a shepherd king. He cared for the sheep of his pasture. Of course, we also read later how another king rose up, a new pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. And, of course, we know what happened, that there was a civil war within Egypt where the Egyptians rose up against uh, the Hiskosks and overthrew them, and they became the dominant power. And uh, you can read the rest of Exodus to see how that played out. Ultimately, we know what? Yahweh took care of his people, and he delivered them. And so he continues to watch over even though he sends us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So we've noted how we're sent out but notice where we're sent. He sends us out in the midst of wolves. Now wolves are what? The natural predators of sheep. Back in the previous sermon Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly are what? Ravenous Wolves. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 29, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. By nature, that's what wolves do. They will attack sheep, even in the sheepfold. And just the same way, false teachers will attempt to infiltrate the church to deceive many. But here, our shepherd king, Jesus, directs his sheep servants to infiltrate the wolves' den. Now, it is inconceivable that any shepherd, let alone a good shepherd, would lead or direct his sheep into what is tantamount to destruction. And nonetheless, that is what Jesus does. Why would he send us out as sheep into the wolves' den? Well, we have to identify the wolves, don't we? To answer that question, we've got to identify the wolves. Now, we're not going to read further, but... Let me summarize that the following verses identify who the wolves he's talking about are. They are the religious, they are the rulers, and they are even their own relatives. And because they're identified as wolves, that tells us what? They're not sheep. Even though they may be related to us, even though they might be our rulers, even though they may be religious, they're not sheep. They're still enslaved to sin. They're not regenerated. And so he sends us out into the wolves' den. He sends us out to the ungodly, many of which will be hostile, just as a wolf is hostile to a sheep. But he sends us because that's where we can serve him best. That's where we can serve him best. We're tasked with preaching the gospel. The lost, the unregenerate need, the gospel, and therefore Jesus is sending us out as his defenseless sheep To ravenous and savage wolves. Because that's where we as his servants. Will be most effective in bringing others to him. And while many will respond. Many more will reject the message. And messenger. And nonetheless we as kingdom servants must be poised. For rejection. By depending solely on our shepherd king. Listen if we go out there. And the first time we hit rejection. If we're not relying on our king, what's going to happen? We're going to run away with our tail between our legs. We're going to run and hide. We're never going to do that again. And besides depending on Jesus for leading, feeding, and protecting us, there is another means by which we can be poised for rejection. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 16. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We're to be shrewd as serpents. Now that word shrewd, phronomos, means to be wise, to be sensible, to exercise common sense. Now that seems to be lacking in our day. We're supposed to be wise, sensible, and engage common sense. Now the serpent, amongst the Egyptians, was a symbol of wisdom. A symbol of wisdom. Why? Because they saw the serpent was exceptionally skilled in avoiding danger. We're to be wise enough, we're to use our common sense to avoid danger. Paul told us in Colossians 4, 5, to conduct ourselves to behave with wisdom towards outsiders and make the most of each opportunity. In other words, use sound judgment, employ good judgment in knowing how, when, and where to speak. Especially in sharing the gospel. You know, how many times, how many opportunities have been lost to share the gospel because you lacked tact, Because you didn't know how to read a room? We need to put our minds in motion before our mouths. And by the way, let me assure you, it is not necessary to say everything you're thinking. Sometimes you just need to keep it to yourself. Furthermore, if we would employ some common sense and wisdom when speaking, how often would we not find ourselves in bad situations or in difficult situations? How many of you have found yourself in a difficult, maybe even dangerous situation because you didn't shut your mouth? Okay? Use common sense, Jesus says. And furthermore, we're to be innocent as doves. Now that word innocent, akaraios. Means to be free of deceit. 1 Thessalonians 2:3, our exhortation, our speaking should not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And then we have the dove, we're to be as innocent or as guiltless as doves. Amongst the Israelites, they saw the dove as a symbol of peace and gentleness. Remember when Moses released that dove and it came back bringing what? That olive branch, that symbol of peace. God's judgment has passed. Jesus' point here is that as kingdom servants we need to be altruistic. Not abrasive, not argumentative, and not inconsiderate in dealing with others. Yet that seems to be the nature of people today. You know, we, we, we applaud abrasiveness. We applaud argumentativeness. We ap- applaud when people are inconsiderate. But that's not how we ought to be. Paul advised Timothy this way. He said, the Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome. It is not a badge of honor for a servant of God to be abrasive or argumentative or inconsiderate. We're to be kind to all. Patient when wrong with gentleness, correct those who are opposing you. Now, listen, folks, rejection is the natural response of wolves to our message. Okay? By nature, they're going to reject. But that rejection should never result because we were deceptive in our message. That rejection should never result because we provoked that response. We need to be poised for rejection. But let's not be the cause of the rejection let's depend on our Lord let's use some common sense and let's not go out looking for a fight and provoking others to wrath let's move on to verses 17 to 21 Matthew 10 17 to 21 it sets forth here that kingdom servants must be prepared for rejection we're to be poised we're to be prepared for rejection be prepared for rejection now in verse 17 Jesus says beware of men The word beware there, prosecco, means be on guard. Be prepared for something. And what are we to be prepared for? Men, anthropos, people who are going to reject us. In particular, we're going to see here as we move through verse 17 to 21, that we're going to be rejected by religious people, by the rulers, and even possibly our own relatives. And we're going to see that interspersed in these warnings of rejection are instructions on how to prepare for that rejection. Let's begin in verse 17. We need to be prepared for rejection from the religious. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Matthew 10, 17. Now the first rejection comes from the quote-unquote religious. Now I want us to understand this context properly. So we need to make some clarifications. First of all, the word courts there is the word sunedrion, which is the term which we can transliterate as Sanhedrin or Council of Judges. Now notice it goes on and says they will scourge you in their synagogues. The problem here is the term translated as synagogues in most English translations is not sunagoge, but it's again the word sunedrion. It ought to be rendered as Sanhedrin they were courts they will scourge you in their courts a better rendering of the text is this way they will deliver you to the Sanhedrin and their Sanhedrin will scourge you now the Sanhedrin were viewed as the court of the people they were they made decisions on uh, religious things and political things and, and and social issues but before we get into that I want us to take a moment here And ask, why do so many English translations render the term Sunidrion in Matthew 10, 17 as synagogues? I have no doubt it is a subconscious form, at best, of anti-Semitism. You see, if we can associate the synagogue with the scourging of Jesus' disciples, it would drive a wedge between what became a predominantly Gentile church and the Jewish people. If the synagogues were guilty of scourging Jesus' disciples, I've got a question. Why would Paul and his co-workers be welcomed to teach in the synagogues? Hmm. Furthermore, the Greek term ekklesia, from which we derive the term church, is a synonym for synagogue or synagogue. Listen, you pick up any Greek lexicon and you look under ekklesia, you look for synonyms, first synonym you will see there is synagogue. Both terms mean an assembly of people gathered for a purpose. And in James, he used both terms interchangeably. Church and synagogue. It's not the synagogue that is the source of the scourging. Now going back to the first century AD, the Sanhedrin was a governing council made up of priests and other religious leaders who would deal with the people's religious, political, and social issues. Rabbinic texts regard, refer to this assembly as either the Beit Din, the House of Judgment, or the Knesset Hagadola, the Great Assembly. The term Sanhedrin could refer to either the Supreme Court, the big one down there made up of, of the 70 uh, in Jerusalem, or it could also refer to various local Jewish courts in each town. Under Roman law, they were allowed to try certain cases. They could determine guilt. They could mete out punishment. And oftentimes, and during the first century, they were looking, hey, they're, they're, they're the religious leaders. They're making the decisions. And often the decision they would make resulted in the punishment of scourging. Now, the word scourge here, mestiga'o, means to whip or to flock. And so what would happen is the condemned would be stripped their hands would be bound to a post, and they would be whipped 26 times on the back, 13 times on the chest, for a total of 39 lashes. And the reason they were whipped 39 times was to conform to the Torah. Deuteronomy 25.3 says, He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. So 39, that was enough. Now, before his conversion, Rabbi Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. He later confessed in Acts 22, 4 and 5 and 19, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, and also the high priest and all the Sanhedrin of the elders can testify. I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. Afterwards, he was rejected by that very same group. And he suffered the punishment of scourging some five times. Defending his apostleship in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23-24, Paul recalls, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. In far more labors, and far more imprisonments, I've been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Sanhedrin 39 lashes. He had been the one delivering them. Now he became the one Receiving them. Folks, we need to be prepared for rejection. Even from those who claim to be religious. And sometimes that rejection will include physical punishment. And while we in the United States may understand some level of rejection by the religious, we know nothing of enduring physical punishment. Nonetheless, in many parts of the world today, there are Christians who are imprisoned, Tortured and put to death for Jesus' sake. On January 30th of 2022, this year, Fulani Muslims killed 11 Christians and burned down their homes in Kaduna, Nigeria. On April 10th, just a few weeks ago, three Muslims attacked a Christian church in Khartoum during a worship service. They assaulted the pastor and the two women, destroyed Bibles and furniture. And when the police arrived, guess who was arrested? The pastor. He was jailed for, and is still in jail, for disturbing the peace. The three Muslims went free. Believers, we need to consider, would we endure imprisonment? Would we endure torture? Would we endure even death for our king? Verse 18 to 20, You will even be brought before governors and kings and for my sake, and as a testimony to them and the Gentiles, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now this second rejection comes from rulers. Rulers. So we've got to be prepared for the rulers. Rejection. Now notice, we will be brought before governors and kings. That word will even be brought... Notice that's four English words for one Greek word, ago. You're going to be sent for judgment before governors. That's any governmental authority at the local or state level. Even kings, the basalus, the head of the state in his day, the Caesar. In our day, it could be a president, a king, dictator, etc. And Jesus predicts here that we are going to be brought for judgment before these individuals for his sake. In other words, the rejection and the judgment that follows are not because of anything we have done, but because of our identity with Him. But remember what He says in John 18, or John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it, is, it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Furthermore, Jesus says this rejection will be a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, think back to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. Joseph is standing there with his brothers. Jacob has died. And his brothers are concerned that now dad is gone. Joseph's going to get even for the dirty deed they did to him. But he says to them, As for you, You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Just think, listen, it wasn't a pleasant thing that they did when they threw him in the pit. It wasn't a pleasant thing when they sold him to the Ishmaelites. It wasn't a pleasant thing when he ended up in Egypt. But we know over the course of time what happened, Yahweh directed and it ended up where Joseph became second to Pharaoh. And when that great famine came, here comes the sons of Jacob to Egypt to buy food. What they meant for evil, God ultimately used for good to preserve them, to preserve his chosen people. God has a purpose. And God will use the evil of men to accomplish his purpose so that he is glorified. And so, if we're ever brought before a human authority because we've preached the gospel or we have evaded his law, let us not decry it, but rather let us see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to declare the gospel. In Acts 23, verse 11, Paul or Jesus appeared to Paul and said, Paul, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed of me in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome. On several occasions, Paul used his imprisonment. To represent the gospel before governors such as Felix and Festus, And later before the king as Caesar himself. And see, even though we're rejected by rulers, kingdom servants, we need to see it as an opportunity. Take the opportunity to share the gospel with them. You may never have another opportunity to get in their presence. Now, I know immediately we start panicking. We're going to, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to say, what, how I would act, what I would do in that situation. Notice what Jesus says here. Do not worry how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. Now, this reminds us of the promise to Moses. In Exodus 4, he said, Lord, I'm ineloquent. I cannot say what you want me to say to Pharaoh. Yahweh says in verse 11 and 12, Who made your mouth? Who has made man mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to say. Friends, we do not need to worry what we ought to say when standing before human rulers. Because God will empower us to declare that message. He says it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father who will speak in you. That is, the Holy Spirit will equip us with the words to speak. The Helper, that Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and cause you to bring to remembrance all that you have been taught. John 14, 26. Now, that presumes you've actually taken the time to study it. If you haven't taken the time to study it, just, it's just like a kid in grade school. Oh, Lord, help me to pass this test. The kid didn't spend any time studying it, but now he thinks God's going to somehow be his genie and give him what he wants. You've got to do the work. And also, I'll say this to any preacher that's listening. Don't claim this promise as a substitute for vigilant sermon preparation. Let's move on to verse 21. Brothers will betray brother to death, and father, his child, and children will rise up against his parent and cause them to be put to death. Here's the third rejection we've got to be prepared for. That verb betray, paradidomi, means to deliver someone over to an authority. Hence, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers are actively going to reject their siblings or children to the point of surrendering them to the authorities For judging or for judgment. Why? Because they declare the gospel. The verb will rise up. A is to rebel or defy God's authority. Children will rise up. They'll defy God's authority. Remember in the Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, children honor your father and your mother. But children are going to defy that and they're going to deliver their parents to the authorities for judgment. Again, why? Because of the faith of their parents. They're going to reject it. And even be put to death. Later in this uh, same chapter, verse 35 and 36, Jesus is quote, quotes Micah 7, 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. In that prophecy, Micah was lamenting the situation in the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. He could not find a righteous one, let alone he could not even find loyalty among his own family members. Jesus himself knew this quite well. In Mark 6, 3, his own brothers and sisters took offense at him. They rejected him. Folks, at times that rejection can even be severe. And we need to be prepared. Don't be shocked if you're rejected by even your own relatives. Now, you know, in our Western world, rejection is mild. Usually it's a verbal confrontation. Sometimes it's uh, family members not speaking. Be honest, that sometimes is a blessing. But nonetheless, that's our rejection. But you know, there are parts, places in this world, there are cultures where that's not the same. I want to give you three quick examples. In Nepal, this all happened in the past year. A young woman named Sumi became a Christian. Her father threatened her with a knife and kicked her out of his house. Another young woman named Eliza. She became a Christian, beaten by her father to the point he broke her shoulder when she refused to go to stop going to church. A young couple named Solomon and Leah became believers. When his father discovered his son and daughter-in-law were going to a church, he killed Solomon and threw his daughter-in-law and grandchildren out of his house. Sadly, there are many occasions when love for the Lord has turned the natural love of one's family to hate. In each of those situations, those rejected have stalwartly committed themselves to continue standing for the King, Jesus, despite the rejection. What a lesson for us in the West, who so often face the rejection from their family, and in turn hide their love for Jesus for the sake of peace. Finally, verses 22 to 23. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. We need to not only be poised and prepared, but friends, we need to be prudent about rejection. We need to be prudent about rejection. Now he summarizes all that he has just said. You will be hated by all because of my name. You will be missio, detested, disfavored, disregarded. Whether it's from some in the religious realm, some in the rulers, and even your own relatives. And this hate is in the present tense, it's an ongoing hatred. And it's because of his name that we're rejected. But we need to be prudent. Why? Because he says the one who endures to the end will be saved. That verb endured, hupomeno, means to persevere, to stand firm, to bear up under the rejection. It implies that even though we're rejected, we don't quit. Again, the promise is, if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. And what is that end? The end is the end of rejection. Now, the end of rejection is sometimes punishment, sometimes even death for some. Nonetheless, he says, if you persist, you will be saved. Zozo. Delivered. Redeemed. Now, the problem with that word is, it creates some confusion. Because what are we being saved from? Well, let me tell you, it is not earthly salvation. He's not saving you from the subsequent judgment, as we've just heard some illustrations. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. I mean, yeah, well, that's true too. But sometimes bad things happen to good people. I know what I'm talking about, don't worry. (laughs) But he's not talking about earthly salvation here. Nor is he talking about eternal deliverance from sin. We know that eternal salvation doesn't come from some work. It's by faith. Not of yourselves, it's by grace, it's the gift of God. Eternal deliverance is accomplished the work of God's Son. It's received by repentance from sin and faith in the gospel, that Jesus died, buried, and rose again third day according to the Scriptures. So if it's not earthly salvation and it's not eternal salvation, what salvation is he talking about? He's talking about what we refer to theologically as eschatological salvation eschatological salvation and that is where we will once we are in god's presence we will be rewarded for what we persevered in this life first peter 1 4 says he has reserved for you in heaven an inheritance that is imperishable and that is undefiled and that will not fade away reserved in heaven for you James 1.12 says, Blessed are you when you persevere under trial, for when you've been approved, you'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. 1 Peter 1.5, We are told we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We've got to be prudent to endure. Because when we endure, we will be rewarded. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the life to come. But not only be prudent to endure, but you need to be prudent amid the rejection. Notice here, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Notice the rejection escalated. It escalated. They just didn't dismiss the message. They just didn't mock the messenger. Now they were persecuting. That word persecute, diakio, means to cause emotional and physical harm. Now, I want to be very clear. We are not to seek persecution. It is not a badge of honor. In fact, Jesus told us that when it comes, escape it if possible. Flee from the city. Acts 17 records that's exactly what Paul did. He followed that exact pattern. When he was in Thessalonica, he was rejected. The religious leaders turned around and did what? They went to the rulers of the city and stirred them up. Now Paul had been there preaching and teaching in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. But not soon after, a riot began and Paul left the city. He went to Berea. And a short while later, again, the people were agitated and stirred up. Paul left Berea. Immediately he left and went on to Athens. And that is the pattern that we see. There is no shame in escaping persecution. Now yes, we need to endure it and the subsequent fallout of rejection, but when it intensifies to outright persecution, it is prudent, when possible, to escape and go somewhere else. There's no shame in moving to another place under those conditions. And ultimately, God's going to use it for what? For the spread of the gospel. Jesus closes here by saying, You will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. In other words, rejection is going to force kingdom servants from one city to the next. It's going to keep on going until the Son of Man comes, until the Messiah comes. Note, they are to continue ministering in the cities of Israel. Yes, the mission expanded to include the Gentiles, but nonetheless, the ministry our king has given us is to who? The Jew first, and then the Gentiles. And this will continue Until Messiah comes. Kingdom servants, listen, we can expect rejection. And for some, that rejection may be a minor inconvenience. Like a little hangnail. But in other cases, it's going to result in severe persecution. And when that comes, you don't need to be anxious. Don't be depressed. Listen, number one, I want to tell you this. The rejection is not personal. They rejected you because they rejected your king. Number two, the Father will empower you through His Spirit to endure. The Father will empower you through His Spirit to endure. And number three, those who endure will be rewarded. If you endure, you'll be rewarded. Listen, my friends, our King Shepherd is sending us out as His servant sheep into a hostile world. And so, therefore, let us be poised, let us be prepared, and let us be prudent. And now let us pray. Father God, we come to you through the matchless name of Jesus. You are infinite in wisdom and knowledge, knowing the beginning from the end. We are finite, and so we come asking for wisdom. We come asking for knowledge to serve you. Father God, give us the ability to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Forgive us when we fail to serve you because we fear rejection. Give us grace to be poised in the face of rejection. And help us to be prepared for that rejection. Enable us, Lord, to be prudent in times of rejection. And to you may all the glory be given, both now and forever. Amen.